listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 through chapter 8, verse 1. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is the word of the Lord. You ever pulled up to a stoplight, looked at the car next to you, and the guy driving that car has the windows down, radio cranked, and he's just singing along at the top of his lungs, like beating on the steering wheel, beating out the rhythm, eyes closed, doesn't even know that the light just turned green. Anybody, you've had this experience? Was it me that you saw? Because I am that guy. Um, though I do at least try to modulate it a little bit when I get to a stoplight and kind of rein it in a little bit. But uh, it, there's a pretty good chance that, that that's me. I'm the one who's uh, belting it out at the top of my lungs. Um, it, it drives the rest of my family crazy when I do this with my wife in the car. She will interrupt me in the middle of a song and say, whoa, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. And I fall for this every time. She's like, who sings this song? I was like, uh, The Who. And she'd be like, okay, okay, why don't you let them sing it? (laughs) And she's not being mean. She's just responding appropriately to the quality of singing uh, that is coming out of my mouth. She's just trying to make it stop. It's it's not pleasant for her, for anyone else in the car. Uh, Apparently, when I sing along, I'm actively, though I'm increasing my enjoyment of the song. She is actively being decreased in her enjoyment of the song, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, My real question is, do any of you do this? Not sing badly, I mean sing along with the radio. Do any of you sing along? Yes? You're willing to acknowledge it? Like seven? Come on, guys. First hour was like, yes, I sing along with the radio. They were pointing at the people next to them saying, he sings along with the radio and doesn't want to admit it. Thank you. Have you ever wondered why? Why we sing along with the radio? What is it about a song with, you know, great melody or awesome lyrics or just a real driving beat or something like that 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 just pulls us into it? You can't help but sing along, play the drum part on the steering wheel, you know, sway a little bit, whatever, belt it out, whatever it is you do. Why? You could ask all sorts of different uh, experts for answers. If you ask a a sociologist, they tell you, well, this is a a way that we feel strengthened in our community bonds when we sing together. And I think there's probably something true about that. If you ask a, 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 a neurologist, they'll tell you, well, our, our brains are wired to respond to music, like you can see it happening in activity in the brain. Uh, If you ask a musician, well, they'll tell you music is the language of emotion, of our souls. This is how we express what we're really feeling. Uh, If you ask a theologian, they'll tell you that music is beautiful. And they mean beautiful in a, a transcendent Sense One of the three great transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And the natural human response to beauty, or to an experience of beauty, is to find it moving. 
It, it draws on you, and the, the response that we all feel is you, you want to somehow take the beauty that you're experiencing and take it into yourself to unite with it somehow as fully as possible. We sing along with the radio because it's the only way we know of to make the beauty of that music part of us, uh, or to probably to put it more precisely, so that we can become part of it so that we can become part of the beauty of the song that we're experiencing. That is the exact same mechanism that's at work when we read the Sermon on the Mount, or when these first crowds heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount and responded with, I want part of that. When you hear the Sermon on the Mount, you hear these, the, Jesus' is teaching, and, and you feel it move you. You want to be moved by it. We want to respond to the beauty of this, somehow make it part of us, or, or, or for us to become part of it, to, to live into Jesus' wisdom that he shares with us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, to live into it is the moral or, or the spiritual equivalent of singing along with the radio, like, it's the only right response to something beautiful is to want to be part of it. Because the beauty of what Jesus is sharing in the Sermon on the Mount, it appeals to us, it, it moves us, it draws us in. Now, we're wrapping up this week, I think about six months of looking at and dissecting the melodies and the chord progressions and the rhythms and the voicing and the tone and the timbre of this sermon. And after dissecting it and breaking it down and looking at all the parts of it for so long, I think it would do us well to kind of step back uh, from all the parts and pieces that go into it and just listen to the song in its entirety. So I'm going to try and take the next 20 minutes or so, this last time that we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, to, uh, to hear the song afresh, to hear it new, almost as if for the first time. Uh, now that we know all the details of what went into it, maybe we can back up and hear the entire song and hear the beauty of the song, uh, to want to join in with the beauty of the song and to sing along, not with our, our voices, of course, but with our lives. So let's jump in. And to get into the sermon, I want to frame it by looking at these last verses at the end of chapter 7. Uh, if you've been here, you know, this whole time, you know, we, we've covered every verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're at the end of the, the sermon proper. Uh, the end of the sermon, we've already gotten to it, end, you know, close quote. By the time we get to verse 28, we're now into the postlude. We're into Matthew's kind of narrative connection between Jesus' sermon and what comes next in chapter 8 and following, which is Jesus taking what he's just preached and living it out in, in public ministry. This is what life in the kingdom, taught in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what it looks like now, lived out uh, as he continues in his ministry. Now, these, uh, these last three verses, unsurprisingly, because Matthew's so great at, at all this structure stuff, these last three verses parallel uh, the first two verses at the beginning of chapter 5 that introduced the sermon. The very beginning and the very end, the introduction and the postlude are almost mere images of each other. Uh, let me read them for you. I'm going to pick up in verse 5. Now, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and, we, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, now to the end of chapter 7, verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, 
Crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Can you see the reverse parallels? Crowds are following him. Jesus goes up on the mountain. The disciples gather around him. He speaks. And then he finishes speaking. The crowds are astonished. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and the crowds continue to follow him. It's almost as if Matthew is taking us up the mountain and back down it again in the way he introduces and concludes the whole sermon. And in the middle of this sort of, you know, mountain-shaped narrative we've got here, right in the middle of it is this key word, authority. Authority. It's a loaded word. In Jesus' day, as well as in our own. Uh, so when, when you hear the word authority, what do you think of? Is it a positive word? You know, authority, yeah, that's the good gift that is given to some so that they can exercise uh, authority over others for their own good. Or do you hear it negatively? No, authority is the power that some have, whether they deserve it or not, to exercise power over others for their good so they can get something out of it. Which one do you hear? Which one do you think the crowd saw in Jesus? Because there's a, there's a little bit of both, or maybe a lot of the second one in our world. And it would be a little too easy for us to hear, you know, Jesus taught with authority to picture a thundering voice from the top of the mountain commanding, here is how you must live. Jesus has authority, so the power to command us. To command me, to command you to do what he wants us to do. Which is probably for our own good, yes. But still, we, we tend to hear it as a command, right? An order. Jesus is pushing us forward into something. And in some sense, he is. But I don't want to overplay the command part of this because the command is not why the crowds were following him. See, authority and the whole concept of authority can be understood certainly in this sort of domineering, pushing way, but also in a much more attractive way. I don't think it's that Jesus is saying, I authoritatively command you to do thus and such for your own good. But Jesus could, I think this is the better way of reading it, saying, you know, because of who I am, Jesus says, I can authoritatively proclaim to you and model for you a better way of living, a, a better way of living, a way of living as a follower of Jesus, flourishing in uh, the upside down kingdom that is to come. See, Jesus, more, more than any other teacher or preacher or lawgiver or philosopher, he has the authority to proclaim for us, this is the real way of flourishing. This is the way you find the life that you're longing for. This is what true human life looks like in relationship with God, centered on Jesus himself, living in preparation for the kingdom that is to come, you know, as we focus on throughout this whole sermon. Now, ideally... Uh, this is how the, the house rules that your parents or your mom or your dad set up for your household when you were a child. Ideally, this is how those rules would have worked. Um, not that they uh, claimed the authority of Jesus, 
but that the, the way they went about assigning work in the household was more about building a communal life together than it was about getting you to do the things you didn't want to do. Did anybody else grow up with a torch art on the walls? Okay, thank you guys. I'm like, seriously, I'm the only one. Um, there it is. You still have the torch art on your wall. So there's a couple of ways of looking at the torch art, right? And the way I grew up with it, because um, my dad always made the list while he watched the races on Saturdays, was this is how I get people I command to do what I want them to do so I don't have to do it. And it was an obligation. It was a burden. Do these things, and then you can have what you want, like breakfast. <laughs> don't do these things, and you can't get what you want, like breakfast or lunch or dinner sometimes, uh, if we were really lazy. It, you know, authoritative list of rules. Here it is. The, I've discovered, talking to other people, that's not the universal experience. Some people actually grew up with the chore chart where they saw it as, because their parents were doing it right along with them, this is the way that our whole family builds a life together that is conducive to all of our flourishing. You see the difference? This is the rhythm of life that as a family we engage in so that every single one of us can do well in this family. There's a huge difference between do the dishes, and if you don't, you can't eat, and hey, for us to live a healthy life together and all contribute to this household, we're going to do the dishes together. You see the difference. Which, which category do you think the Sermon on the Mount would fall into? A new authoritative, demanding list of rules or a, a, picture, a, a picture of a way of living, a rhythm of life that's conducive to flourishing in the family of God? There's a big clue to help us answer that question in the very last verse that Matthew uses to transition into the next sections, chapter 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Did you notice the difference between how the crowds were described in chapter 7 versus chapter 5? Chapter 5, crowds. Chapter 7, or chapter 8, great crowds. For some reason, after Jesus preached this sermon, more people followed him than before. He preaches this sermon, this one that is all too easy for us to read and understand as a burdensome list of rules, as a law that is even more difficult than the law they've been taught before, and yet more people are attracted to Jesus and follow him. I think there's, there's a huge lesson for us there, that they didn't follow Jesus because he laid down some new law or an even heavier burden than they already had on their shoulders from the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's not the kind of authority that Jesus wields. He's not pushing the crowds in front of him, saying, do this. I'm commanding you to behave this way. He's drawing the crowds along with him, saying, listen to my words, watch my life. This is what real living looks like. This is what you've been longing for. He's not giving them a new law. He's showing them a new way to life. Or to use the analogy we started with, he's singing a song of life to them, a song that's so beautiful they can't help but want to follow and sing along. 
And so they follow because they want to live into the kind of life that Jesus offers in the Sermon on the Mount, a life of wholeness, a life of integration, a life where your desires aren't at war with one another, a life where you're constantly worrying about whether or not you're good enough or if people think you're good enough. He's offering them a way to life, and the beauty of what he offers is appealing to the crowds. It moves them. It draws them in. What about you? And what about us? Can we hear the beauty in this song? Well, for the, for the last time in this series, we're going to try and step back just long enough to hear the song in its entirety and, and maybe catch a glimpse of some of the beauty of this foundation song uh, one more time. Now, you'll remember uh, from the very beginning, the very beginning of the series, that the occasion for this song, the whole reason Jesus starts singing, if you'll permit me to continue to use this analogy, the occasion is that something new has burst onto the scene, a new way of living, something new has interrupted into history, a new way of life or source of life has erupted into the world, and it's the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus shows up on the scene singing a foreign song, an echo of a melody that you've never heard and yet feels like your own native song. He comes singing this this song from a future land, the song of the kingdom to come. It's the kingdom of God, the kingdom which the Jewish people have been eagerly waiting for, and it's now coming on the scene in the person of Jesus. And what do you do when the far-off future kingdom is, is here? Well, you you can't do anything but turn in the direction of that kingdom and begin living into it. That's why chapter 4, Matthew introduces the sermon by saying, hey, Jesus is preaching, turn to me, repent, turn to me because the kingdom of heaven is here. The sermon song is introduced as a, as a call to repentance, to turn towards Jesus, to this new way of, of living in the kingdom because the good news of the kingdom of God is here. It's come. The song begins with a recognition of real life now. So it begins with the the Beatitudes. It's it's a powerful melody that recognizes the the difficulties and the injustices and the poverties and the trials that everyone, especially the common folks who are following Jesus, that that they go through. He starts almost with with a, a repeating refrain of questions Are you mourning? Are you poor in spirit? Are, are you meek, hungry, thirsty? You find yourself in situations where you're called on to be merciful, to make peace. Are you pure in heart? Are you reviled and persecuted because you just are trying to do what's right and you want other people to do what's right? Do people lie and cheat and say false things about you because they want to get you in trouble or get something that they want. You can imagine a peasant audience kind of hearing this for the first time and Jesus saying, if this is you, be comforted. 
Be comforted because in the kingdom to come, the people who endure such suffering will find a great reward because it's, it's only those in that kind of suffering who are truly living, not just living, but, but growing, are truly finding the kind of life that prepares them for the kingdom to come. If, you are, if you're suffering or mourning or poor in spirit or finding yourself in situations where you have to make peace, you are in the kind of life, the kind of soil in which you will best grow into the kingdom to come. So if you're, if you're suffering for the sake of righteousness while you wait for God to bring his heavenly kingdom back to earth, he says embrace it. It's paradoxical, but this is the way to life. A life that prepares you for the kingdom to come. And as you discover this, as you live this, even as you live it while being, while being spoken badly about, persecuted, reviled, and all that, it, this is a life that others need to see lived out. This is a song that others need to hear. So be salt, be light, right? light, be, make visible the glory of God to people around you, and, and be salt, which is proof of a permanent covenant between God and his people. These metaphors are specifically chosen because they echo all of the songs of a new covenant, of a new thing that a new era is dawning, that God is doing something new in Jesus. Not throwing off the old, but finishing, completing the old. The future kingdom is coming, and you and I and these followers of Jesus are called to sing this song into the world. Not hide it, not muffle it so that people aren't offended by it. The point of a song is to be sung. And the point of singing is to be heard. So be salt and light. Illuminate the world with the permanence of the new covenant in Jesus. And how you do that, how that light is shown, how that salt is spread, how that new covenant is announced, it's not through overthrowing or, or abolishing or getting rid of everything that came before. It's through fulfilling, finishing, completing everything that was previous. We finish the old way, Jesus says, by finally living it. By living it the way it was always intended to be lived, but could never accomplish on its own. And so Jesus sings in chapter 5 a, new, a song of new understanding, a song of six points, of living the old law as it was intended. Not as a, as a superficial, performative righteousness, but as a deep and heart level and whole person transformation. This is wildly appealing and incredibly beautiful for people who are living within such an oppressive culture that says you have to do these things to be right. You have to say these things to be right. And if you don't, we'll attack you on Twitter. We'll get you fired. We'll make sure we get rid of you somehow unless you perform to this level of righteousness. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Look, the point of all of this righteousness is not just to look good on the outside, to just say the right things. And sure, there are those among you who, those who live among you who seem the most righteous. And they avoid all the big stuff. They avoid murder. That one's fairly easy. 
But does the command to not murder, has it actually drilled down into their hearts and dealt with the anger underneath the surface? And he says, sure, there are, there are those among you, those who lead you, who seem righteous because they've avoided the command. Uh, they, they haven't broken the command, don't commit adultery. Again, that one's also fairly easy. But has that command really drilled into their hearts and dealt with the lust that's underneath the surface? It gets even closer to home in the, in the next couple of points. Is that I know these guys are creatively using the law to get around doing what's right by doing what's legal. And taking advantage of people like you. So how do you respond? Do you, just like them, justify hating because, hey, this person's my enemy. They stand for something that I oppose. If I hate what they oppose, I must also hate them. Is that how you respond? You're no better than they are. See, Jesus sings this, this song of six applications, heart-level applications of the old law, showing that, hey, those who seem righteous, seem righteous on the outside, aren't really righteous at all. Yeah, you can look good on the outside while being rotten on the inside. You can want to look righteous without wanting to be righteous. Jesus has a word for it. He, he repeats the word in this melody over and over again. It's hypocrisy. They're double-minded, double-souled, disintegrated. You might think of it like a car with a beautiful body and a rusty frame. Or a house with a fresh coat of paint and rotting joists and a failing foundation. What good is it? How truly righteous are they? I mean, it's a question we have to, have to ask of ourselves, too. How, how righteous are we if we're one person on the inside and another person on the outside? If we're one person at school and another person at home, or we're one person with our family and another person at work, you're one person on Saturday night and someone else on a Sunday morning. If you're tired of living a disintegrated life where you're putting on a different mask with different people, you're living by different values in different situations, Jesus says there's a righteousness that goes deeper than just fulfilling the expectations of whoever is in charge in whatever context you find yourself in. There's a heart-level righteousness, a whole-person righteousness that's driven deep into your heart so that you're, you're holy. Righteous, whole-souled, whole-minded, wholehearted, wholly pointing towards and living toward God. It says anything less than that integrity across every area of your life is just performative righteousness. It's performative goodness. And the kingdom to come demands while also providing a higher and a deeper righteousness than you see in the religious elite around you. It's a righteousness that's thicker than skin. It's deeper than just the frosting on the cake. It is righteousness all the way through, from the heart out, not just the skin out. And he culminates, this, the song comes to this point at the end of chapter 5 where he says, in the kingdom to come, you will be... And so in the kingdom now, you can begin to practice being whole. You can be whole just like your Father in heaven 
is whole. Now, it's one thing to pursue that wholeness, that whole person righteousness in the way that you, you know, avoid sin, in the way that you try to fulfill that law and resist the temptation to just be performative about it. But there's a whole other branch of our lives where that whole person righteousness applies to how we approach and, and come to know God himself. Jesus says to this crowd, look, I I know you've seen the religious leaders around you parading their righteousnesses for everyone to see. And their righteousness is your despair. Because you know you'll never be that good. I know I'll never be that good. I'm never going to have the kind of money. He's saying that you're never going to have the kind of money where people look to you to be the one who gives blessings to other people. You're never going to be the heavyweight donor, the philanthropist. You're never going to be able to parade your wealth for others to see how much God has blessed you and how righteous you are because of it. He says to them, look, you're never going to have the kind of training you need to eloquently and impressively pray and show people how deeply you think about God by the way you pray in public or in the family of faith. He's talking to a bunch of folks who are never going to have the kind of self-discipline to at least pretend like they're fasting twice a week. You know you're never going to have that, and you can, tell, you can tell because you're looking at these guys who are fasting twice a week, and they just look horrible. Like, that looks really tough, and I'm not interested in doing that. But Jesus says, look, that's okay. I'm not asking you to perform some high level of pious performance. It's actually better than okay because that kind of performative piety isn't going to fly in the kingdom to come. When that kingdom comes, God is going to bring with him a reward for all those who gave in secret, for those who prayed in secret, for those who fasted for the benefit of others in secret. Because, look, in the kingdom to come, we don't pray and give and fast in order to be seen. We pray and we give and we fast because we are living out our calling in the kingdom of God. Better is the one who humbly serves invisibly for the love of the ones they serve than the one who proudly serves publicly to be loved by the ones they serve. And at the core of all of this, this piety, the, the, the prayer, the giving, the fasting, at the core of it all, what, what holds it all together in whole person righteousness is how you humbly approach God in just your, your daily prayer and interaction with him. This is the high point of the sermon, what we call the, the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father Jesus models it for us. He says, this is what humble prayer before God, what humble piety looks like. It's just, God, our Father in heaven, I'm your child, and you don't need to be convinced to love and care for me. So may your name be held as holy in my life. It's a prayer that says, I long for your kingdom to come for the justice and the righteousness you long for to be done here on earth and in my life 
just as it is always and perfectly done in, in your kingdom. But for today, and while we wait for that day, until that kingdom comes, just, Father, please address my needs and forgive me for my lack of whole person devotion to you and help me forgive those who have done wrong to me and in all the tests and the trials, keep me from the temptation to abandon you and rescue me from my every failing. The way we move towards God and whole person righteousness is just with this humble prayer of God, you're my father who cares. I long for you to come and I long to do what you will do when you come. Help me in the meantime while I wait. And then Jesus modulates into another key here about halfway through chapter 6 because the, the biggest threat to this ability to humbly come before God in whole person fully integrated heart-level righteousness, the biggest threat to that is the anxiety that we feel around our things and our people, right? All of our stuff and all of the folks that we care about. So Jesus shifts the song a little bit. If you're anxiously grasping and clasping things of the world, he says you're only ever going to feel anxiety about losing them. Because a whole person, disciple of Jesus, holds on to their treasure in heaven tighter than their treasure on earth. In fact, is willing to give up all of their treasure on earth for the sake of the treasure in heaven. But that doesn't mean we're being called to throw off everything and live into a, light, a, a life of you know, dirt poor poverty. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, look, in God's upside down economy, look, e even the, the birds and the flowers are worth investing in. God's putting investment into the birds. Look how they eat and the flowers. Look how they're clothed. And Jesus says, look, if, if God invests in the very least in his kingdom, how much more is he going to invest in you? He's not asking you to just to give up everything, to get rid of everything so you don't feel anxious about anything. He's saying, I care for them. I will care for you. You worry about living into the coming kingdom. Jesus says, God will worry about taking care of everything you need in this one. Because it's precisely those people who try to engineer their happiness who are most anxious about everything falling apart. When it all depends on you, you can't ever take a nap. Because you have to hold it all together. So when it comes to holding on to your stuff, God's saying, look, I mean, Jesus is telling us, God is inviting us into this way of living that, that continues to rest and trust in a good father who says, I've got this. You worry about living into the kingdom, I'll worry about providing right now for this one. If it's true of your stuff, it's also true of the people you relate to in everyday life. You have to move towards your things and consider your things in, in light of being a whole person disciple of Jesus, not holding on to stuff with your heart. You also have to move towards people with this whole person righteousness, not allowing a heart attitude of, of self-righteous superiority poison your relationships. 
That's not this fully integrated whole person righteousness Jesus is calling us to and offering as a way of life. And so he warns us, look at yourself first before you attempt to discern others' shortcomings or their failings or give voice to how they can improve. If you're not whole, you can't help others become whole. And don't think you find your own wholeness by fixing other people's brokenness. Focus on what's going on in your own heart and soul first. And while you're doing that, don't give in to the temptation to think that this, the way you look at other people is the way God looks at you with self-righteous judgments, withholding good gifts until you behave to a certain level. He says, no, ask, seek, knock. And you will find because God is a good father who blesses his children and gives good things to them when they ask. That's what a whole father does. And so the sermon, again, this song comes to a high point when Jesus sings, you know, when you interact with the people around you, relate to them the way God relates to you. Do for them what you would want done for yourself. All of the old rules for interpersonal relationships, all the old guidelines for how we behave with one another are summed up in this golden vision. Chapter 7, verse 12. Whatever you wish others would do for you, do that for them. Whatever you long that others would show up and provide or do or give or minister for you, do that for others. That's what, that's what whole person righteousness looks like. That's what we do when we live out this kind of righteousness that's wholly oriented towards God. The, the kind that is anticipating you know, God's coming kingdom. So we're living in light of who God is and what he wants and what he will do when he returns. And after bringing the song to this high climactic point, Jesus starts to bring it down into these final sort of, I guess these final chords, these last three pictures. A warning for all those who sing this song that you can't sing it without meaning it. Don't fall for the easy road of surface level righteousness. It actually leads to destruction. And don't follow the voice of the prophet who speaks well and even performs impressive feats. The righteousness might only be skin deep, and at some point, the rotten core is always revealed. And don't, and this is the biggest warning of them all, don't listen to Jesus' song and walk away without singing it yourself. It's like, it's like building a life. It's like building a house on an unstable and shifting foundation because at some point the storms of life and, and the final storm of, of God's revealing judgment will come. If you're not singing this song, your life won't stay standing. And with that conclusive 
and final chord hanging in the air. This is no 50s pop song fade out. This, this song ended on purpose with it hanging in the air like that. We read, and when Jesus finished the song, the crowds were astonished at his singing, for he was singing as if he was one who had authority, and not just echoing other songs like their scribes. And then he came down from the mountain, and great crowds continued to follow him. Why? Why did crowds follow him? Why did more people follow him after the sermon than before it? Because he wasn't laying on them some new law. Like, you know how hard it was in the Old Testament? Well, now it's even harder. He's not laying on to them these new commands that you have to live up to, an even harder and higher righteousness. He's not laying on them an even heavier burden than the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, that's not the kind of authority he wields. Jesus isn't pushing the crowds in front of them. He's drawing them along behind him. He's drawing them along with a, a vision for what true human life, human flourishing looks like when it's lived in relationship with God, centered on Jesus and in, in anticipation of the kingdom that is to come. This is more than just any human wisdom. It's more than any human authority could call for. It's an authority that's so much higher. It's a divine authority. And it, it's a wisdom that comes from a source of holiness that is greater than anything anyone else has ever preached or encountered. This whole sermon from the upside down and unanticipated flourishing in the very beginning to the heart level applications of the old law to reorienting the way we pursue God himself, then into that, that cutting wisdom about our stuff and our people. Jesus' wisdom, his way of living is never, uh, it's never presented as simply a natural conclusion that any human philosopher could have come to by just looking at our hearts and looking at our lives. This is so much bigger and greater than any of it because it's about something new, a kingdom that is coming. Jesus' call to human flourishing, his call to living the Sermon on the Mount is a, is a call to a new way of living because the new kingdom is finally coming. It's, it's near, it's here, and it's returning to earth, and we can live because of Jesus, eagerly expectant, waiting, anticipating the kingdom to come, living out and what God is like, what God wants, what he's going to do when he returns. So he ends the sermon or ends the song or ends the analogy by saying, is that the way of life you want to live? Is that the song that you can't help but singing along with? Because I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when, we, when you or I, when we sing along with the radio, we're not actually contributing anything helpful or meaningful or positive to the recording, right? And not just if you're a bad singer like me. If you're singing along with the radio, you're not helping or contributing. 
Even if you were to learn every instrument and master every part and figure out how to play them all at once and sing every vocal line and do that whole harmonizing with yourself thing that was so popular for a while and, and all of that to where you could, you could play that entire song all by yourself, you would only ever be a cover version. Because none of us are the original. None of us are the original beauty of the Sermon on the Mount, of the song that Jesus is singing, but a cover version is the best way we know how to make that music part of us, or even better, to become part of it. To live the Sermon on the Mount, to sing this song is, is the only way we know how to capture the beauty that we see in the way Jesus lives and in the wisdom he brings and to somehow become part of it. The on, there, I shouldn't say the only reason. There's two reasons we sing along. One is that, to become part of it. The other is because there are so many people who have never heard the original. All they know of this song is your cover version of it. Our job is to sing this song so well that the cover draws others to the original. You think this is good. Boy, you should hear it when it's really being sung. Look at this Jesus. And so when the, when the melody of the Sermon on the Mount captures us and, and the rhythm of this way of life moves us and the, the harmonic resonance of Jesus' life and teaching draws us in, the only right way to respond is to do whatever you can to make that life part of you. Or even better, to make your life part of, of it. So after, after six months of breaking down every verse and every note and every chord progression and pointing out all the resonances and the harmonies and everything that's gone into this beautiful song that is the Sermon on the Mount, can you hear the beauty of it? Can you hear it? And do you want to sing along? Not with your voice but with your life. Father, you have, have given for us in the person of your son, you have sung for us a, a melody that is an echo of a life to come in the future, but a life that we want for ourselves and those we love now. Father, it's a melody that is difficult to master with intricate harmonies that require thoughtfully thinking out and thinking through and living out. So, Father, we pray that as we learn to resonate with the beauty that we see here and sing it out in our own lives, that through your Son, the one who sang it for us perfectly, we may become fully fitted for the task of heralding the kingdom that is to come. In our song, Father, make us whole, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.